Showtime Sports presents Showtime Boxing with Eric Raskin and Kieran Mulvaney. Hello and welcome to another edition of Showtime Boxing with Raskin and Mulvaney with my co-host Eric Raskin. I am Kieran Mulvaney and Eric, I have to know, what is your plan for the coming weeks? Is it cranking up your vinyl copy of the Who's Tommy and letting rip every time Roger Daltrey sings I'm Free? Or is it donning the tidy whities and dancing to Bob Seger singing about some old-fashioned rock and roll? Because I'm pretty sure we've got one or the other coming up. <laughs> you, uh, of course, did not explain uh, why uh, you're asking me this question. Oh, Again, why spoil it, the fun? <laughs> leaving it to me to do so. Before I get into letting the listeners know what the hell you're talking about, I will just note that it's 2022, Kieran, and I do not own tidy whities. And, and and I'm pretty sure I'd injure myself attempting to slide across the floor in socks. So so that one's out. Uh, so uh, yeah, what uh, Kieran is referring to is the fact that uh, my children have left for camp. They will be gone for 49 days, but who's counting? Uh, and uh, as, as it so happens, overlapping with part of that, uh, in a week, my wife is leaving for a 10-day trip to Israel with a group of fellow moms, sort of uh, one of those partially subsidized trip for, uh, for Jewish folks to go get to do Israel, uh, which she hasn't done in, uh, since, since she was, uh, I guess, in her late teens or something like that. So she's going back and leaving just me and Otis the dog all alone for 10 days, living the bachelor life, uh, doing our best Kieran and Alfie impression, basically. <laughs> um, the, the plan, uh, there, there, is no, there is no Roger Daltrey or, or Tom Cruise impression plan. The plan is mostly to sleep whenever I feel like sleeping outside of day job working hours, mostly, um, and to, uh, to binge watch a lot of TV because there is so much stuff that I'm trying to catch up on. Um, now, a, a friend of mine has also invited me to his shore house. I might take him up on that, but then again, I might deem that a little too much of an adventure that interferes with my sleeping plans. Um, I was also considering hosting a poker night. Feels like I should if I have a house to myself, but again, might be too much effort and clean up and having to interact with people. So uh, we shall see. The, the main goals are certainly lots of TV and movies, lots of sleep, lots of snuggling with my main man, Otis, and uh, zero time spent <laughs> wearing tidy whities Yeah, and the problem when you start inviting people over, then you've got to clear up all the empty potato chip packets that you've left lying around the living room <laughs> because you can. <laughs> you don't have to clear those up. If you're just inviting over other guys, there's no expectation that you'll clean the house at all. Detloff wouldn't care. <laughs> uh, no, I invite Detloff and Nigel over for something, you know, they'd be fine. Great. Now, now I'm picturing me, Bill, and Nigel all sitting on the couch watching boxing in our tidy whities That's that's the, that's where you this has welcome. ended up, unfortunately. Yes. <laughs> you are welcome. That has been my contribution. All right, this week on the podcast, we'll share with you. What we expect will be the last of our Hall of Fame weekend interviews to air on the pod, uh, our chat with new inductee Lou DiBella, which is all in all about as upbeat an interview as any that Lou has ever given. Um, we'll also cover lots of news surrounding newly announced fights uh, involving everyone from male champions to female champions to YouTubers with large followings. And at the end of the show, I'll count down boxings all time. I'll call them top five overachievers, or if you don't like that term, top five fighters who maximized their abilities. But first, let's talk about some in-ring action. Uh, in San Antonio on Saturday night, well, I could use a lot of sentences and paragraphs to describe what happened, or I could just give you one word, Eric. A single syllable, in fact. Bam! <laughs> yes. 
Uh, that syllable, that onomatopoeia, in fact, uh, refers to 22-year-old Jesse Bam Rodriguez, who was making his first defense of his 115-pound belt against veteran ex-champ Srisaket Sorung Visai. It was a classic crossroads clash on paper, but in reality, it was a one-sided beatdown as the 35-year-old Srisaket couldn't keep up with the youngest belt holder in the sport. According to CompuBox, Bam outlanded Srisaket in every round and ultimately outlanded him nearly three to one over the course of the fight, 233 landed punches to just 84. Rodriguez scored a knockdown in the seventh round and forced the stoppage at one minute and 50 seconds of the eighth, improving to 16 and 0 with 11 KOs, while Srisaket fell to 50 wins, six losses, one draw, 43 KOs. In his previous fight, Bam bumped off Carlos Quadras. Now Strisaket. He's halfway to beating the whole superfly modern Mount Rushmore with Chocolatito Gonzalez and Juan Francisco Estrada, the other two left standing. After the fight, Bam declared, quote, I am a special fighter, not an average fighter, and I am here to stay. Kieran, I think we can agree that Bam is not an average fighter. That, that much is clear. So just how special is he? And what stood out to you about this performance on Saturday night? I think he's truly special. I mean, he looks like an elite level boxer already. Uh, he fought a marvelous fight on Saturday night. And a lot of it stemmed from his footwork. I mean, his footwork mm. was sensational and it allowed him to slide in and out of range as he saw fit. And it also meant that when he was in the pocket, he was able to fire short, straight combinations without ever reaching or being off balance or out of range. He used his feet to put himself exactly where he wanted to be at all times. And then when he punched, he punched with, with really a ruthless efficiency and, and economy. There was no wasted movement, no wasted energy. His punches were straight and they were short and they were fast. He was on point. He had a plan and he moved steadily through the gears. You know, he was, you know, touching Strisica early on, uh, sort of increasing his output as he went, went uh, deeper into the fight. And then around round five or six or so, it felt as if he went up into a totally different gear once he felt that he'd softened Srisaka up and, and really put some extra force behind his punches while still throwing a lot of them. Um, yeah, it was a 35-year-old Srisaka, and yes, he's seen better days. But even so, this was a massive statement. It might actually be the single best performance of the year so far, mm. I think, along with Dimitri Bivol dismantling Canelo and and maybe I might well be missing some folks but right now I think probably Bam and, and Bivol are sort of at the head of the line for fighter of the year at the moment um look this kid's a sight to behold I, I'm gonna be honest he wasn't on my radar at all before he fought Quadras he, he right. just wasn't um and, and now I can barely wait to see him again uh yeah. to be honest I, I I really really enjoyed what I saw so I'll ask you the same question I mean what stood out for you in this win and you mentioned chocolatito and estrada do you want to see rodriguez against the winner of that rubber match or has he already proven all he needs to against the old guard that's a tough question um i guess i'll come back to that after uh, after my thought i'll give my thoughts on the performance and then and then i'll get back to whether i want to see him try to finish knocking the heads off the mount rushmore um like you, I found this performance against Teresa get dazzling. Uh, and like you, I will offer the caveat that, you know, it's a slow, flat-footed 35-year-old Teresa Cat, and he might have been the perfect guy to look dazzling against. But I absolutely 
do think Robert Garcia has himself a special fighter here. And we have yet another young guy knocking on the door of pound for pound consideration. What a ridiculously crowded field it is from like number eight or so to number 25 or so. A a lot of guys (laughs) like Rodriguez who, you know, maybe one more impressive win and they're in there. Um, What stood out to me from the start was exactly what stood out to you. It was how the feints and the footwork and the defense set everything up. Bam has these young spry legs and this active upper body movement. And Srisaket was just a step slow at every turn. And by the end of the first round, I was already feeling like Srisaket's only chance was the proverbial puncher's chance. He needed to just land a, I don't want to call it a lucky shot, but you know, that sort of miracle one punch that hurts him. Otherwise there was no way he was keeping up in this fight. Bam looked untouchable against him and his offense. I mean, he can punch from any angle. You, you think he's out of position. No, he, he finds a way to land a right hook or a left uppercut from a strange angle and also throw in his southpaw jab and how long and sharp and accurate it is. Again, aided a bit by Srisaket being kind of slow and creaky at 35, but it would appear to my eyes that Bam Rodriguez is not just your run-of-the-mill good prospect turned champ who's going to have himself a nice career, you know, along the lines of um, like a Juan Diaz or, or uh, a Pauli Malinaggi or whoever, name any number of A- minus level fighters over the year. I think we are looking, just as he said, I, I think we're looking at a special fighter here. So the question of him facing the, the Chocolatito Estrada three winner, I guess I can't really do the, oh no, I, I don't want to see Chocolatito take that beating bit like we did with Denaire against Inouye the first time if I still have Chocolatito and Estrada on the fringes of my pound for pound top 10. Right. Um, So, I I mean, I guess it depends a little how the winner looks in that fight, assuming the winner looks good. I mean, let's say Chocolatito wins and, and looks as reborn as he has the last couple of years. He can do a lot of things better than Srisaket or Quadras can. It makes all the sense in the world to see what happens between him and Bam and to give Bam that chance to grab the torch from, really the entire generation of great superflies. Uh, it's such a rare thing this position Bam is in to get to maybe face and beat three top guys from the generation before his. But yeah, I guess I would say with a tiny bit of nervousness for either Chocolatito or Estrada, I say bring it on. Uh, although I am definitely of the mindset that I favor Bam in that fight right now based on what we just watched. Indeed. Um, and in the co-feature another of boxing's rising lower weight class stars 27 year old 122 pound belt holder Murajan Ahmedaliev also scored a fairly one-sided knockout win although he cut it a lot closer than Bam Rodriguez did stopping Ronnie Rios in the final minute of the final round uh, and MJ did it with an injured left hand suffered in the second round he used that hand sparingly at various points in the fight but wasn't shy at all about throwing it in the 12th when he knocked Rios down after hurting him to the body and soon forced the stoppage. Akhmedaliev is now 11-0 with 8 KOs, while Rios drops to 33-4 and with 16 KOs. Eric, uh, you've been slightly less high on Akhmedaliev to this point than I have, which isn't hard. Um, so what are your feelings on him coming off of this performance? Well, to paraphrase Larry Merchant at the conclusion of another notable 12th round knockout, Murajan Akhmedaliev, I love you! Uh, and now Larry said that a couple of times. Uh, so I'm specifically <laughs> referencing the Shane Mosley, Ricardo Mayorga finish when he screamed it. And I'm not screaming it because I'm totally sold on him now. Uh, rather, 
I'm screaming it because I made an in-fight bet on MJ by KO, and it wasn't looking too ah. good. Uh, and then, so that made for a thrilling 12th round for me. So I had to declare my love for him when the stoppage came. Um, look, it was a slightly uneven performance for Akhmedaliev, but surely a lot of that was due to the hand injury. Um, but what a tremendous statement he made in the 12th round. He was way ahead in the fight, but chose to press for the KO, chose to throw that injured left hand with abandon in the final round. And in so doing, erased any criticism anyone was thinking of lobbing his way for going the distance with a fairly ordinary opponent in Ronnie Rios. He erased any chance of that. Um, Even after the ref gave Rios way too much recovery time after the knockdown, had him uh, performing various sobriety tests to prove he could continue. And that seemed to be cutting into Akhmedaliev's chances for the KO. Akhmedaliev still got in there and got the job done and won me a pizza. Um, The performance up until that point was still very good, uh, especially given the one-handedness of it in certain rounds. He's just a real spark plug, Akhmedaliev. He's he's this little stick of dynamite. He's fun to watch. He was really hurting Rios to the body. All credit to Rios, by the way, for the toughness he showed in round four, refusing to go down. Uh, and then Akhmedaliev just showed a lot of resourcefulness when he had to only use the right jab and right hook. He was still mostly dominating. So, All in all, I was very impressed with MJ. I'm not as high on him as I am on Bam Rodriguez. Um, And I'm probably still a half notch below you in terms of MJ love. But there is some love developing here. But but you tell me, am I still a half notch below you based on what I just said? What do you have to add on this performance from Akhmedaliev? Um, And I'm also, I'm curious for your snap take here in the moment. Clearly, Akhmedaliev and Stephen Fulton are the top two in this weight class. Where do you see them relative to each other right now? Um, so to take the performance first, I thought it turned into an excellent performance. I thought the word that you used there, uneven, was was actually a very good descriptor of it. Um, interestingly, it seems to me that not unlike Gary Russell Jr., although it ended differently, he seemed to fight better when he was one-handed. That portion of the fight when he just thought, ah, screw it, I don't have a left hand, so I'll just keep hitting him with my right, with my lead right hook. And doing so with tremendous effectiveness, I thought was just terrifically impressive. Mm. Um, you know, it just shows uh, how difficult he is to time and anticipate, and also how reluctant Rios was to move that left hand up from his body um that that Akhmedaliev was able to just keep popping him with that with that right hand like that um and then to step it up in the 12th with the fight clearly won you know that was the kind of thing that Terence Crawford would do and, and often does so yeah I thought it was a strong win but yeah like you said it was uneven but also like like you said the fact that he had that injured hand almost certainly contributed to the unevenness of it yeah he was a one-handed guy who still ultimately dominated the fight and scored that knockout that said and again maybe it was a factor of 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 him having that injured hand there were times in that fight including quite early on in that fight where i thought to myself stephen fulton's gonna mess this kid up with his speed um you know i i I'm I'm still very high on Akhmedaliev indeed. He's one of my very favorites. But the key to that contest for Stephen Fulton, if it does happen, it's going to be real estate in the ring. Who can control the distance? And also whether Akhmedaliev's body punches can slow Fulton down at all. Um, yeah, I love Akhmedaliev. I, I love everything uh, about watching him fight. I love how composed he is. I love how balanced he is. I love how compact he is. Um, would you call him a spark plug? That was a yes. Was that the word you used? <laughs> yep, yeah. Yep. Terrific. Terrific. Yeah. Really just, just love it. Love his little Beatles haircut. Love everything about the dude. <laughs> um, but I do think that, you know, styles make fights. 
speed kills. And for those two reasons, I think I would make him a close underdog, but a, a, a clear underdog uh, if that matchup with Fulton ever does uh, come about. Yeah. Um, one other fight on this San Antonio card worth discussing. It turns into a bit of an odd one. Uh, as undisputed women's welterweight champion Jessica McCaskill dominated Alma Ibarra, rocking her in each round until... When the bell sounded to begin the fourth round, Ibarra refused to come out of her corner. Uh, McCaskill goes to 12 and 2, scores just her fourth KO win, while Ibarra slips to 10 and 2. Eric, how impressed were you with McCaskill? What did you make of the way that the fight ended? It was a strange ending. Uh, not speaking Spanish, uh, just reading the body language, or I guess misreading the body language. I thought in the moment that Ibarra's trainer was threatening to stop the fight and that her saying no, no was her not wanting it stopped. Uh, I had it completely wrong. Um, it's a quit, plain and simple. And then everyone can go ahead and make their own judgments about how accepting they are of this particular quit. But this was undoubtedly a, a surrender. Uh, Abara was apparently saying she didn't want to keep fighting because of her distaste for how McCaskill was holding her. But McCaskill wasn't holding excessively at all. So Either that was just a weird made-up excuse or, quite possibly, Ibarra had had her brain rattled and didn't know exactly which end was up, and all she knew for sure was that she wanted out of there against a, a far superior opponent. With all the flush right hands McCaskill landed that appeared to rock her, I would say the rattling of the brain would certainly be understandable here. Um, I was surprised by McCaskill's approach from the start of the fight. She just came right out slugging and looked great. She's not known as a puncher, but her punches were extremely effective. And Ibarra had zero head movement. You know, no matter how slow and looping some of McCaskill's punches were, every single one kept landing flush. And Ibarra just stood still, getting drilled with everything. McCaskill's an interesting fighter in an interesting spot. She's the undisputed champ at 147, even though she insists she's really a 140-pounder. And she's peaking at age 37. And I'm just not sure what's out there for her now. She's pretty well cleaned out the welterweight division. A rematch with Katie Taylor, who decisioned McCaskill in 2017, that's the only big fight that can be made for McCaskill that I see. But it's, it's not necessarily what makes sense for Katie Taylor, who is, after all, the lightweight champ right now and can surely get paid better for a rematch with Amanda Serrano. McCaskill is excellent. She's a top five female pound for pounder. But I don't see much out there for her other than, as we've mentioned, her extremely promising broadcasting career. Yeah, that whole ending was very peculiar. I have very little to add to what you said, really. It was all a bit of a strange fight. McCaskill was sloppy, and, and I don't know how long she could have kept that up, but obviously she made the calculation that she wouldn't need to. Um, you know, I would have liked to have seen her set up her punches more rather than the way she went for it. I, I like to think that this isn't like her new fighting style, but rather a tactic specifically designed for this specific opponent, you know, with the knowledge that Ibarra isn't very mobile, that, you know, this was her first time fighting for a, for a title and that maybe she could be gotten at early. And maybe they had a sense that there was a little bit of mental fragility there that they could exploit. Um, and I'd be interested to see how McCaskill fights the next time. Yeah, it was an interesting comment you made there about, about what's next for her. And I, th and I think this remains still a little bit of the problem with women's boxing is the talent pool is so much better 
than it was. And, and the quality of the top fighters is so much better than it was. Uh, there's still inevitably not a tremendous amount of depth there. And as is the case quite often with men's boxing as well, sometimes um, the talent sort of congregates around one or two weight classes. Uh, you know, we had Leila Ali talking to us the other week about part of the reason why she retired when she did it was just no one to fight right like in her weight class there was just nobody except you know smaller girls who ate to get up to 168 pounds and so there was no challenge so um so yeah i don't know it, it's interesting like you said mccaskill sort of she has this career renaissance very very late um i don't know what she what she's going to want to do i mean i still think she does have opportunities a fight with 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 Katie Taylor notwithstanding, I don't think McCaskill's a huge welterweight. I, I think that um, a rematch there would be pretty interesting simply because McCaskill is making a pretty good name for herself. Uh, and obviously, you know, Katie Taylor's having already huge and, and the other side of the Atlantic has, has really become a big star over here. So, yeah, maybe that's the, that's the, the one possibility for her. I'd favor Katie Taylor in that matchup. But, uh, mm. but yeah, as for the ending of this one, I don't know, man. It, w- it was peculiar. Uh, it was peculiar. I had the same sense as you. You could hear her saying no. It was obvious that, you know, her corner, the corner was going to stop it. But it was strange that he put the mouthpiece in and then sort of started to take it out. It was, I don't know. Uh, nobody in the corner seemed to be complaining when it was stopped, least of right. all uh, Ibarra. So, so right. there you go. To uh, this, this will take us a little bit off track, but uh, but only briefly, probably. I guess when you're when you're mentioning Leila Ali having nobody to fight, we we didn't push back on her hard on this during the interview. Truth. It wasn't the time Truth. or place for it. But there was she, one person she, to fight. There was Ann Wolf out there, and and Layla kind yeah. of gave her excuse that Ann Wolf should have fought somebody else to earn the fight with her, and that those other women weren't fighting each other. But uh, let's just yeah. note there there was one big fight out there if she'd wanted to make it. There was one. You okay. are correct. All right. Um, hopefully Layla's not listening and doesn't uh, want to rebut anything I just said, because uh, I would back, <laughs> I would cower and back down uh, in the face of any of that. Um, pissed off enough fighters during our <laughs> Hall of Fame interviews. Yeah, I guess so. All right. Let's get into the news of the week. Uh, doing the news segment earlier in the show than we usually do. But uh, hey, we are nothing if not wildly unpredictable. That's why the people tune in. <laughs> yeah, that's us. Curveballs like this. The news segment coming maybe a whole 10 minutes before you were ready for it. We're crazy. Uh, Anyway, uh, news time and most of this week's news concerns fights being added to the schedule. And our news main event, staying on the topic of women's boxing here, is about a match that is now on the fight calendar, almost certainly the biggest women's fight that can be made right now, aside from a Katie Taylor, Amanda Serrano rematch. Dan Rayfield reported on Wednesday, that Clarissa Shields versus Savannah Marshall for all four women's middleweight belts is set for September 10th at the O2 Arena in London, though the official announcement probably won't come until after the July 4th weekend. Both women sport records of 12-0 as pros, and Shields's only loss in a 78-fight double Olympic gold medal amateur career came against Marshall in 2012. Kieran, how eagerly are you anticipating this one? And... I was a little surprised to see that the odds makers are making Marshall the ever so slight favorite around minus 120 with Claressa right around even money or plus 105. Does that surprise you as well? So I'm increasingly eagerly anticipating this. There was a time maybe a year or two ago when I would have thought it would be great and well worth seeing. It would be a significant event and there would be that excellent backstory, of course. But I would have made Claressa a pretty big favorite. Mm -hmm. Uh, Since then, though... 
Claressa's become just a part-time boxer. She fought four times in 2018, just once a year in each of 2019, 2020, uh, and 2021, and so far 2022. Marshall's fought basically twice as many fights in that time, more than half of her pro fights she's had in that time. And she's taken on some good opposition, uh, including previous Shields foes such as Hannah Rankin and Femke Hermans. And she's beaten them more comprehensively than Shields did, including the thumping KO of Hermans recently. Only two of Shields' pro wins have been KOs. Only two of Marshall's haven't. Um, now, Shields' overall class of opposition is higher than, than Marshall's. It includes Alexa Christina Hammer, Tori Nelson, Franson Cruz de Sion. But Marshall's KO power is significant. She's tall. She gets good leverage on her punches. Um, she appears to have become more assertive both in and out of the ring as she's grown in confidence. And I think that's what makes it such an intriguing fight. More to my mind now, than an amateur bout a decade ago when Clarissa Shields was 17. And I, I wonder if it's that power factor combined with the fact that there are more likely to be a bunch of Brits betting on Marshall than Americans putting money on Shields mm. that accounts for those odds. I, I wonder, especially early on, I, I wonder if that's a factor there. We'll talk about it more as it approaches, obviously, but I'm excited for this fight. And it's the first time in a long time, perhaps ever, uh, that we're heading into a, a boxing fight, I sense some real potential jeopardy for Clarissa Shields, to be yeah. honest. Shields and Marshall aren't the only elite female fighters in the news this week. We'll call this our news co-feature. As opponents have been named now for the August 6th Showtime pay-per-view at Madison Square Garden. And in one of the two co-headline bouts on the card, the aforementioned Amanda Serrano will drop back down to the featherweight division to take on Brenda Carbajal of Argentina, who has a record of 18 five and one with nine KOs. The other co-headliner of the card is Jake Paul. And as had been rumored, he has rescheduled the fight he was supposed to have in December against Tommy Fury. He will be the first professional boxer the 5-0 Paul has faced. Eric, what's your interest level in Paul versus Fury and any early thoughts on Carbajal as an opponent for Serrano? So taking the first part first, uh, you talked last week about how Jake Paul versus Mike Tyson would be kind of irresistible as circus fights go. Uh, Jake Paul versus Tommy Fury is nowhere near on that level, but it is reasonably intriguing. Now, if you're not interested in Jake Paul one bit, you, you don't care what becomes of his boxing career, I don't blame you. I, I, I get that. But if you do have at least a passing interest in him as a fighter, and that's where I'm at, uh, a passing interest, sort of curious to see just how far it goes. If you have a little bit of interest then this is a fight worth paying attention to because it is him against a real boxer for the first time. Not a world-class boxer, maybe not even an above-average boxer. Uh, that's to be seen, but a boxer, someone who treats the sport as his profession, who has been in and around gyms most of his life, who isn't a fellow YouTuber or a retired NBA player or a faded former MMA fighter. Tommy Fury is a pro boxer, a novice pro boxer, but still, a pro boxer, and it's not an easy fight for me to pick a winner. So count me in for this fight. It's not a must watch. It's not a drop everything, cancel all plans kind of situation, but it's a situation where if, if nothing more pressing comes up that night, I'm tuning in. Uh, and of course, having a chance to watch Amanda Serrano sweetens the deal. I consider her the best current female fighter. I thought she beat Katie Taylor closely, but clearly to my eyes, um, she's a pleasure to watch in action. As for Brenda Carbajal, she's better than her record suggests, 
and still probably has no chance against Serrano because Serrano is that good. But uh, but Carvajal, here are her five losses, a six round split decision in her eighth pro fight back in 2015, a 10 round unanimous decision, actually two 10 round unanimous decisions in 2016 uh, against 14 and two Johanna Alfonso and 43, six and one Marcella Acuna, a majority decision in 2017 to 11 and 0 Rose Volante after Carvajal fought back from knockdowns in both the first and second rounds and almost made up the gap on the scorecards and a unanimous decision to 9-0 Sarah Mafood in 2020. She's never been stopped. She has beaten a 9-0 fighter, and in her last fight, she edged a 32-3 and opponent for an interim featherweight belt. So, bottom line, pretty good for an 18-5-1 fighter, but probably cannon fodder for Amanda Serrano. Uh, in our news undercard, still more fights announced this week. Perhaps the most eye-catching is the September 4th Fox pay-per-view, which strikes me as the kind of show I would be very much looking forward to watching if it were on broadcast TV or basic cable or premium cable. Uh, the main event is a clash of veteran heavyweights, uh, Luis King Kong Ortiz versus Andy Ruiz. And on the undercard, it's Isak Pitbull Cruz versus Eduardo Ramirez, our friend and Showtime broadcaster Abner Maris returning to the ring to take on Miguel Flores and Jose Valenzuela versus Jezreel Corrales. On July 9th, Abner will not be in the ring, but he will presumably be ringside in San Antonio for a Showtime Championship boxing broadcast. We already knew the main event, Mark Moxayo versus Ray Vargas. Now we have the supporting TV bouts, Brandon Figueroa versus Carlos Castro in a 12-round featherweight fight, and Frank Martin versus Ricardo Nunez in a 10-rounder at lightweight, plus a pair of pre-show fights on YouTube, uh, Rashidi Ellis versus Alberto Palmetta and Ramon Cardenas versus Michelle Banquez. Uh, a site has been announced for the big September 17th Canelo Alvarez Gennady Golovkin fight. That'll be at T-Mobile Arena in Las Vegas, as their first two contests were. Another fight worth a quick mention, purely at the rumor stage. Take this as seriously as you want to. But there's talk of a possible Floyd Mayweather Conor McGregor rematch. Thanks mostly to McGregor posting on Instagram a photo from their first fight with the caption, I accept. And last news item, a fight that didn't happen on this past Saturday night's DAZN card. We were supposed to see a rematch between Julio Cesar Martinez and McWilliams Arroyo, but Martinez withdrew on Thursday with an undisclosed illness. Kieran, what would you like to comment on among these? So to take the um, Martinez Arroyo situation first, I think this is now the third time, or is it even the fourth time that this has been scheduled and either didn't happen or ended up in a, in a no contest. Right. I, I can't imagine we're going to see Arroyo's camp clamoring to have that fight again now. I rather suspect everybody involved is moving on. Um, I don't love the Showtime main event on July 9th, um, but I do quite like the newly announced undercard. It will be good to see Figueroa back. His loss to Stephen Fulton looked pretty good anyway at the time, as it was very close, and it looks, I think, considerably better in the light of Fulton's dominance over Danny Roman. And I'm keen to see Frank Martin, who, who looks impressive. Um, I do like that Fox pay-per-view card, other than it being a Fox pay-per-view. <laughs> um, Ortiz Ruiz is a pretty decent loser-leaves-town heavyweight matchup, right? Um, right? I'm not wild to see Abner back in the ring, but he's obviously been checked out thoroughly and told he can go ahead with it, and it's his life to live. And he obviously feels that he has some unfinished business there, which I understand. So I hope he emerges from that without any problems. As for the possibility of Mayweather-McGregor 2, which I believe Fight Hype also reported as being as close as possible to a done deal. Hmm. Um, 
I can't imagine too many people will want to see it. Um, although there is an oddly large segment of society that seems to think McGregor gave Mayweather a tough fight the first time around. Um, Connor's won what one MMA bout since then, something like that. I, I just, I just don't really see the relevance of it. So Jake Paul was commenting recently that he thinks Floyd is broke, and obviously he's trolling because that's what he does. Right. But you see how many exhibitions Floyd is suddenly putting together, and the paucity of successful betting slips he's been posting on social media. I, I kind of wonder if he isn't that he's burning through a few more Benjamins than he'd like at this phase. Hmm. Possible, yeah. Um, one notable thing about that Fox pay-per-view card is that. September 4th is a Sunday. It's it's the Sunday of Labor Day weekend. Um, so it's kind of interesting to see them experimenting with that. And it's mm. on the last weekend before NFL begins. Uh, smart to uh, to do it then. Uh, mm. it, it, it might do okay, although holiday weekends can be a little dicey with people traveling. Um, but I personally appreciate that it's on a Sunday because that Saturday, my son and I have tickets to see the Red Hot Chili Peppers. So uh, by going Sunday, Fox avoids a conflict for me personally. And uh, then on top of that, knowing that Showtime will reimburse me, I might just order the pay-per-view. Probably wouldn't otherwise. Um, it is a, a solid card from top to bottom, uh, I, I will say. Um, I like the additions to the July 9th Showtime card. Um, we've talked about the challenges of getting pumped for any main event involving Ray Vargas, but the, these are good fights and fighters to fill out the show. And lastly, on Mayweather McGregor 2, I don't care. You can't make me care. Um, but it is quite clear that for whatever reason, whether it has to do with money or not, Floyd isn't really interested in totally retiring from boxing. He likes having one toe still in the water. If he's going to keep dabbling in exhibitions and sideshow fights, I guess that there aren't many that'll pay him more money while presenting a near zero chance of defeat than getting in there with McGregor again under boxing rules. Of course, Mayweather remains officially retired from boxing, so he was eligible for the International Boxing Hall of Fame and was part of the gigantic three-in-one induction weekend earlier this month, as was the man you're about to hear from. Uh, you've already heard our interviews with quite a few Hall of Fame fighters. Here's our conversation with Hall of Fame promoter and network executive Lou DiBella, recorded in Canastota on induction weekend. We are here right now with Hall of Fame promoter Lou DiBella. Lou, welcome you know and congratulations. That sounds nice. Does it? <laughs> it really does sound nice. Like, like you know, go to my show list and hearing Ray Flores, you know, say that. It was like, wow, man, I'm, I'm here. You know, yeah. that's sort of cool. It really yeah. is. And you had to wait a couple of years to start hearing it this regularly. What, what was that yeah. like? That you were supposed to be class of 2020, and obviously there were more important things than you having to wait to go into the Hall of Fame. But was it a little rough waiting, waiting nah, to get you know, to this it, day? No, not so much. Look, we were going through such hell, all of us, mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. that it was completely, uh, you know, understandable. And it, and it really did create something special for this weekend. I mean, yeah. there are a phenomenal number of boxing fans here. Like, I mean you know, a couple of tens of thousands. Yeah. Like, it's crazy. Like, the number of people I've seen since I got here Wednesday night and, and, and you know, every single person knowing every single inductee, uh, you know, yeah. it's, it's, these, you know, we have a, if we're a niche sport, we have a strong niche. Yeah. yeah. And, and an interesting one. Yeah. And an interesting one, you know, and, um, no, I'm thrilled to be here, man. It's like, I just found that I had to say a few words tonight at this dinner and I wasn't expecting, I, to be honest, I didn't prepare. I, every time I sat down to write something, to prepare for tomorrow I've never really written a speech in my life okay. I've always just got done you know spoken so that's what I'm gonna try to do tomorrow is just get up there and mm -hmm. go um, but I was thinking about what I was gonna say tonight and, and this is like 
like you're getting your roses and I'm still fucking alive and, and yeah, it's, right. like, it's like it's like walking around and hearing your own eulogy <laughs> right. like you know yeah. where everybody is showing you love and everybody has something nice to say to you and, right. and, and then also the fighters that are getting in this year were contemporaries of mine to a large extent like right. I you know I worked with like an overwhelming number of them and yeah. I know almost everybody being inducted um, but guys like Hopkins I work with and you know I signed Floyd to his first HBO contract right. and and, and you know, I, I know all these guys since, you know, I'm a kid. I've been 30, now 33 years in boxing, but I started in my 20s. And, like, in the 90s when I was working with a lot of these James Tony, right. you know, and, and, and Tony Tarver, mm-hmm. you know, I grew up with those guys. Yeah. You know, and, uh, and I, you know, honestly, it's been, it's been a tremendous experience, and I'm so overwhelmed with gratitude mm-hmm. which is not a specialty of mine <laughs> yeah. but, but I really like I really it's, it's, it's never really been something I've been good enough at this is a, z- a zero griping Lou DiBella weekend it yeah it really you know it very much is you know but I, on the griping thing because that, that's also something I would actually talk about you know I, I, I tonight I'm going to try to talk about a couple of things I'm not going to talk about tomorrow right okay. um, but you know my critic like I've been pretty vocal critic of our own sport like almost since I started in it right um, and, and you know Eddie had a conversation with me re- you know a while ago we were having a disagreement on something and he said you're so negative and miserable about everything that, 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 that. And, I, and I said to him okay whatever that's your perspective but you know I, I sort of view the, view the sport like you have a brother or a sister or a mom or a dad or a child that are troubled you know that have issues mm-hmm. it doesn't mean you don't love them mm-hmm. you love them to death but you want to see them get better. Mm. And that's sort of been my approach toward boxing. It's like, man, I, I'm, this is always going to be in my fiber. This sport's part of me. It's been part of me since I was 11 years old with a transistor radio under my pillow listening to round-by-round updates of Ali Frazier, mm. right? But a, a, as a professional in it, seeing the dark sides of things, mm-hmm. there are things that are just simply unacceptable. The, 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 the lack of, of, of standardized health and safety measures across the sport you know where where you, you know right now a guy can can be knocked out 14 times in a row and find a, a venue in the United States that will license him you know th- there are people with notable brain injury on you know evident on their cat scans that can that information never finds its way to states that don't require cat scans so a guy can be brain damaged and go and fight with a blood test and an eye test in some jurisdiction that's that doesn't test, and that's barbaric. Yeah. The barbaric stuff we have to change. Yeah. It, it troubles me that the bad decisions and the politics of judging and the connection between judges and ratings organizations and sanctioning fees and A-sides and the whole, there's a, there's a systemic favoritism of the favorite, and, mm-hmm. and you know that troubles me. It troubles me that there are exclusive deals between promoters and networks that stop us from getting the big fights. Mm-hmm. I don't say this stuff because I don't like boxing. I say this stuff because I love boxing. Right. You right. know, and, and I, people might be tired of hearing of it, but I, you know, I'm, I'm, at this point I'm 62 fucking years old and I'm not going to change. So it, <laughs> you know, it's, it is what it is, as they say. So you're not just in the Hall of Fame as a promoter. Um, I, and by the way, I have no illusions. I think there's no way in the world I'd be a first ballot Hall of Famer and gotten into my 50s if it wasn't for my time at HBO. Right. Well, so I, the, I think it was, it, it was a comp, you know, it was really... I had two very distinct yeah. careers, yeah. and I and, and I'm, I mean I'm proud to say I think I did well at both of them, but I have no illusions. I think it's it's right. both that got me in here. Yeah, I'd love to talk a little bit, uh, you know, about that because obviously your time at HBO was was a really pivotal time for, for the company and, and for broadcasting boxing. And 
when you showed up at HBO, what was the process? How, how did you end up there at HBO? And, and, and what were you thinking was, was lying ahead for you? You know, it, it's sort of interesting. I, um, I was interviewing to be a, a lawyer with the New York Yankees. And I had an interview scheduled with George Steinbrenner. I got through all these interviews with like underlings, and then it was the final interview, and Steinbrenner was going to decide among three people. And I took a day off from work at my law firm, and, and uh, I was working at the time to go in and meet with the Yankees. So I'm at home, and I, my, my, my home phone rings, which everyone had a home phone back then. Right. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and the cell phones were like huge. <laughs> yeah. But, um, and my home phone rings, and it's Steinbrenner's secretary, and she sounded like really sheepish, and she's like, "Oh, I don't know how to tell you this, but uh, the boss canceled your interview." And she said he said he said to tell you he thinks you're very impressive, but you're a kid, and he thinks you're too young okay. to be the general counsel for for the Yankees. So I was like crestfallen, and then the woman says, "But I don't know if this helps you or not, but you know it seems to me you're interested in sports." And I said, "I am." And she said, "Well, the guy that's going to get the job was about to be offered the job to be the general counsel of HBO Sports." Okay. Now, this lady didn't know my my loves were boxing and baseball. As soon as she said HBO Sports, I thought, Seth Abraham, HBO. I knew the HBO building was on 42nd Street. I put on my jacket, put a resume in my pocket, snuck past the, the security guard at the HBO building, and found my way to that chief lawyer at HBO, and talked, chatted up his secretary for an hour and a half, you know, like every trick I had in my book, trying to get her to let me see her boss. He heard me begging and pleading with her from inside his office. He comes out, he goes, you know, you got such unadulterated goal to be up here trying to do this that I'm gonna I'm gonna talk to you. So I went into his office and he's and, he, and I showed him my resume and you know I had the right resume I and mean, this guy was a like a Ivy League kind of guy himself right. and HBO only hired as lawyers Ivy League kind of guys back then. But what I tried to sell him on is well look I got the Ivy League thing, but I know boxing and like I know boxing better probably than anyone at this building. And he was like, whoa. And, and then, you know, and he said, well, you know what? He goes, Let, let's see about that. And he sent me up to see Seth. And it was a Friday afternoon. I went up to Seth's office and um, and I was there for an hour and a half. And, and Seth's, you know, was also from Brooklyn. Seth loved boxing, but Seth's first love, like mine, was baseball. We, we sat there for an hour and a half. We talked about boxing. We talked about baseball. We talked about life. We talked about Brooklyn. And, you know, it was a Friday afternoon and Monday morning I got a job offer. And, um, and almost from the day I started, I knew, like, I'm so happy to be here. And this is, like, I took a gigantic pay cut. I was making huge money as a lawyer, and I took a gigantic pay cut. In fact, HBO was concerned that I took such a big pay cut. <laughs> but before I took the job, I said to them, you know, I don't think I'm going to be sitting in the same position very long. So, yes, it's an enormous pay cut right now, but I don't think it's going to be an enormous pay cut forever. Yeah. So uh, ah, the confidence let, of you, think. Yeah, they <laughs> sort of thought that that was funny, and they liked it, and, and they hired me. Oh. Um, and, and, and it worked out that way. I mean, it worked out that my knowledge of boxing was, you know, I, I really believed that we had to be more um, proactive as a matchmaker. That, that the network, if you buy a TV series and we're HBO, we're casting it with who we think is going gonna, is gonna to be, you know, who the stars are. You're making Sex in the City, you want Sarah Jessica Parker. You know, they, they, you, you go to people and, and you look at the whole program that they're offering you like who okay who's in the Sopranos who's writing it okay well who's fighting mm. you know I think the problem where, where I think I did things a little bit differently than my predecessors as programs had done I think I changed the game for a while mm. I think now it's much less that way I think that television programmers are way less involved mm. in the programming in the matchmaking and maybe they need to be more involved I think maybe what stops them from being more involved are those exclusive deals with promoters mm. 
that also stop the big fights from happening. Mm. It's completely unacceptable that Spence and Crawford's not made already. Mm. I mean, now, I mean, it might be you know, very close. There's no excuse. <laughs> I, I, I was in a bus with Bud, and I, one thing I'll tell you about Bud is he's not a bullshit artist. Mm -hmm. And I said to Bud, I'm hearing that, you, that you're almost done, man. I'm so happy about that. He goes, No, man, don't believe what you're hearing because mm -hmm. we're not anywhere near done. I don't have any idea. No deal done. No one's talked to me recently, and there's not a fight yet. Mm. And I don't think he's lying to me, mm. you know? Now, I believe Bud and Errol both want this fight, mm -hmm. but at this point where, you know, and you can't even blame the, the network thing because, yeah, you got Errol exclusive with PBC, but Bud's a free agent, right? Mm -hmm. so, so how do you not make that fight? Mm. You know, and, and but I think those exclusive promoter deals have been really, really hard on the sport. And, it, and also, I, I'm gonna go on a limb here. If you wanna look at the demise of HBO Boxing, I would trace it to the exclusive deal that was done with Golden Boy, and I forgot what year it was yeah, made. Right. But and again, I'm not blaming Golden Boy. If someone had come to me, or come to anybody and said, "Hey, want to do an exclusive deal with you?" No one's going to say no. Right. But I think HBO had never done an exclusive deal with a promoter, only with a fighter. And I think that 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 sea change to do exclusivity with a promoter really, really detracted from the quality of the product that HBO offered. In, in the 2000s and 2010s mm, yeah. and I don't think it was an accident that they went under mm. um, it breaks my heart because man we were the you know I have a jacket at home we only have, only like 10 of them were made because we found out we violated a trademark we had a jacket that said the heart and soul of boxing and really for a long time HBO was and by the way I'm going to say this in my speech to, uh, you know tomorrow but Seth Abraham should be in the Hall of Fame yeah I, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's really an oversight. Yeah, Jay, Jay Larkin's in. You're I mean, it's, there's in. no Seth, excuse for Seth not Seth being into the Hall soon. of Fame. Yeah. 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 There's no I mean, he, honestly, if you want to look at someone that saved the sport after those giant scandals with mm -hmm. network TV and boxing, HBO Boxing saved boxing, and the architect of that was Seth Abraham. And you know, Seth and I, you know, we didn't end great, but we're friends again. Okay. I'm always be grateful to him. He gave me the opportunity of my life. I would never be here today without Seth. Um, but he belongs in the Hall of Fame. Yeah. Um, so last thing that, that I want to ask you, Lou, uh, looking back on the career, it's weird to say looking back on your career when obviously you're not done, but you've done enough to get in the Hall of Fame. You know what, I'm going to say this. <laughs> I'm going to stop you right there. Okay. I don't want to be doing this forever. Okay. I really, really don't. Right. Like, I am not Bob, and I am not Don. And, and I, by the way, the poignancy of Don promoting a big show this weekend blows my mind. Right. And Bob getting, you know, his, his little self on a friggin' airplane and going to Melbourne to yeah. be with me and, and pr help promote that show yeah. um, blew my mind too. Right. I mean, these guys are forces of nature, right? Yeah. But, dude, I'm not going to be doing it at 90. You want to enjoy some retirement at some point. I'm not going to be doing it at 80, yeah. and I'm not going to live to 70 if I continue to do it much longer. <laughs> okay. Now, that being said, having promoted an event in front of 42,000 people in Melbourne a week before I'm getting into the Hall of Fame yeah. was a joy. Yeah. was a joy. And watching a, a young star emerge in Haiti, yeah. Yeah. You know, I don't think it was George's night. George will be back, but I don't think it was George's night, and I don't think he committed. In that fight, I, I honestly, it was a disappointing performance, I thought. And I think there were some distractions around yeah, the whole situation and his own team. Mm -hmm. um, I think he needs to clean those up going forward. Yeah. I, I think he can certainly compete compete with Haney much better than he did in that fight. Right. But what I saw out of Devin Haney sort of really mm. pleasantly mm. like surprised me. Mm. I saw a brilliant boxer. I saw a clinic. I saw a jab that's maybe the best I've seen since young Triple G. Mm -hmm. um, and I also saw a kid that was committed to excellence, that mm -hmm. got on a plane without his father, yeah, right. not, not knowing that his father was gonna be able to get in. I, I gave him my word, 
I was going to try everything I could try to get his father in. And his father got in the day before the fight. Right. You know, and, and that was through a tremendous effort on the part of everyone involved in the event. But I liked what I saw from Devin in that promotion and that fight. And, and the father and the kid were men of their word. And, and you know, Eddie did nothing the last week of that fight and before the fight but shit on everybody and shit on the situation and, and, and talk about all his crocodile tears and worries for Devin. Devin's undisputed lightweight champion of the world. And, and he got a fair playing field, which was evidenced by that event. Yeah. Right? So, you know, it is what it is. You know, right. Eddie and I are a little bit like oil and water, but so be it. That's not going to change. <laughs> That's been a whirlwind week for you from Australia to promoting Showbox on Friday night to now going into the Hall of Fame. Great way to cap it. And, and congratulations again, Lou. It's great to uh, be with you guys, yeah. and uh, it's great to be here. And, you know, I'm... Uh, I haven't been this happy in a while. Like this is like really <laughs> awesome. a happy weekend. It, it's it's yeah, just like two or three little gripes in the whole fifteen well, minutes you know, that we chatted. That's, that, that's a record. You know, that's for not you. a big building, right? right? Right. But it's a powerful building. Yeah. And you walk in there, and if you love the sport like we do, yeah. you can't be not be moved walking into yeah, that building. Great, and to see my picture up there, yeah, that's awesome, brother. Yeah, it gives you the feels. That's great. Good to see you guys. Great talking to you. Man. Thank you, man. Many thanks there to Lou, who was very Lou in that interview. Um, he had a lot to say, as he generally does, but it was all good, as it generally is. It always amazes me how, notwithstanding the all the friction, I should say, that they've had in their professional and personal relationships, how alike in many respects Lou and Bernard Hopkins are. It's yeah. ask a question, sit back, make a cup of tea, you know, walk <laughs> away, come back. Um, but they always end up being good points. And, and Bernard's interview with us was great as well, to be fair. Um, and indeed, Lou and indeed Bernard were just among the many interviews we conducted during Hall of Fame weekend. Uh, we had a couple of them on our pod last week and before that. And several more have posted on the Showtime Sports YouTube channel, uh, with I think the final two or three likely to post this week. So do look out for them. Uh, we've been getting some great responses to the videos that we have posted. Uh, and the interview with Roy Jones has so far gotten by far the most attention. Yeah. Instead of a tweet of the week, let's go with a couple of YouTube comments of the week, shall we? Um, okay. here's, here's one. That's part of the running gag that will never die. Full toolbox. I like that, said Big Top Voice, who was, <laughs> had obviously never previously been exposed to our Roy Jones full to toolbox uh, thing. But I liked uh, Juan Alvarez's comment. Interviewers couldn't match Roy's energy. They didn't know what to say. Laugh emoji. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> no lie there uh we uh we didn't quite know what to say mostly because i think we were confused by roy being insulted by eric complimenting him um if you missed the interview or missed us talking about it eric managed to piss off roy by saying he's been widely praised as the most gifted boxer ever to step into the ring the horrors um do check <laughs> okay, it out right. if you're <laughs> do you indeed um so on the basis of that um uh, last week, Eric set me a top five challenge to find the opposite. Five boxers who can be said to not be the most talented or gifted, but who squeezed every ounce from their career. Call it overachiever, call it maximizing their talents. Either way, that's the subject of my top five list this week. And it is a really difficult category, um, depending on how one chooses to address it. You could argue if you decide that, well, I want to go with a the theme of overachievement, you could argue that the Manny Pacquiao, who was stopped in three rounds in 1999, greatly mm. overachieved. You could make the case if you're like, how does somebody, you know, let's do fighters who've maximized their talents, that Floyd Mayweather maximized his because he worked his damn ass off. But what we're going for here is a kind of middle ground. 
uh, of fighters who are talented, naturally, um, but nothing like a Jones or a Mayweather level. They didn't have anything in their arsenal necessarily that made you think, yeah, that guy, I got to watch that guy. But they were able to achieve great success or not even great success, but perhaps more success than one might imagine, given their toolbox. Um, I'm not sure that this list is a top five, but it's five okay. <laughs> with a few honorable mentions. You gave me a choice. Pick five modern Hall of Famers who somewhat fit this category or basically anyone. Uh, I took the latter approach and instantly regretted it. But uh, <laughs> in taking that approach, I deliberately excluded any modern Hall of Famers. Okay. Um, and I will say that my list veers very heavily toward the very modern fighters, um, because I think this is a category that could probably apply to 70, 80% of boxers who've had some kind of uh, success. But anyway, right. uh, that's quite enough prologue. Here we go. Here's, <laughs> okay. here's five names that I came up with. And at number five, I put Carlos Baldemir. Um, nothing really special about the Argentine slugger at all. Uh, can you tell me what was his best punch? Or what would be his highlights? He was a solid pro, but he had no particular physical gifts. Uh, he was 5'7", which wasn't big for a welterweight, and it certainly wasn't big for a super middleweight, which is what he ended up being. Um, he wasn't fast. He didn't have KO power. But for a brief shining moment, he was the lineal welterweight champion of the world. When he outpointed a man who would arguably belong on any underachievers list, Zab Judah. Uh, he then stopped Arturo Gaddi in his forced defense before losing to Mayweather and then to Vernon Forrest, ultimately Canelo, before, as I mentioned, winding up somehow at 168. He finished his career with a highly unremarkable record of 49, 16, and 6 with just 15 KO wins. Uh, when I was looking him up, I didn't realize this. This had missed me. Maybe we talked about it before, but his personal life is subsequently off the rails and he is yeah. in jail. I don't know if we talked about this. Uh, I don't remember it. And reading why he's in jail i hope he's there for the rest of his life um but for his achievements inside the ring he has a place on this list yeah i don't know if we had ever talked about it on a podcast but certainly whenever his name comes up there's someone on twitter or something who will bring up what a disgusting individual he is based on the uh, what he's been charged with and so it makes it a little icky to even mention his name anymore um but for this sort of list for the parameters that you chose to follow here. Uh, he's a, an excellent choice, fits it very nicely. I'll, I'll note that even though you told me in advance you were going to go the with the any fighter ever is eligible parameters, um, I decided that I was more interested in the other set of parameters that I, that okay. I offered. So, so I haven't actually prepared my own version of your list. Uh, rather, when you're finished, I will do a quickie version of revealing my list of the Hall of Famers who ah, maximize their excellent. talent. So, so I'll, I'll give you that. Uh, Look countdown. at us changing it up again. Yes. Yeah. We are wildly unpredictable, Karen. People think wow. they know what we're going to give them, but uh, eh, yeah. 99% of the time they're right. Um, but uh, not this time. Um, so, but anyway, uh, yeah, Carlos Baldemir, at least for one night, he way overachieved uh, what he should have been able to achieve. Next on my list, I put Iram Barkley, um, who is. The only fighter to have fought Roberto Duran, Thomas Hearns, James Tony, Henry Masca, Jerry Kutsia, and Trevor Burbick, for God's sake, um, as well as the likes of Nigel Benn and Darren Van Horn. And he lost most of his big fights, uh, especially toward the end. You could actually make the case 
he doesn't really belong here, that he was in fact exactly as successful as you would expect someone of his skill level to be. But it's a measure of the credibility that he had garnered for himself that his loss to Duran is considered one of the Panamanian's greatest nights, although admittedly that was because Duran was 72 at the time. <laughs> and of course, he somehow managed to beat Hearns twice. And truth be told, those are the wins that get him on this list. But they count. Hearns only lost five times in his career, including once as a result of injury at the very end of his career. And the other four losses were to Sugar Ray Leonard, an all-time great in a classic, Marvin Hagler, an all-time great in a classic, and Iran Barkley, twice. Um, there was nothing really remarkable about Barkley at all, but he made what he had work for him, and he stayed in and around the top levels of the middleweight division and then subsequent divisions for years. So I'm seeing a, a bit of a theme developing with uh, the direction that you've taken this. Guys who scored a major unthinkable upset over an opponent who was uh, all in all far better than, than they were. We'll see if the rest of your list continues that way, but that's certainly what stands out about, uh, about Baldemir and Barkley. Indeed, it does slightly change here. Okay. Because number three is John Ruiz. Um, hmm. When Ruiz was blasted out and around by David Tua. Who would have imagined that we'd see him on HBO or indeed any major platform again? But he took his limited skills far farther than he had any rights to. After that humiliation, he went 1-1-1 one, one, and one against Evander Holyfield in three unwatchable bouts. Suffered another humiliation as Roy Jones showed just how limited he was. But then be the likes of Andrew Galata, Fraser Kendo, Jamil McLean, Haseem Rachman, before petering out to, with defeats to Nikolai Valoev and, and David Hay. His fights were almost invariably horrible. Um, and in an era where belts weren't splintered, he would surely never have had even a sniff of any kind of heavyweight title. But I think he squeezed every ounce out of his limited ability. And I think when he looks back on his career, as he you know, presumably has been doing over the last 15 years or so, I think he can safely say that he probably didn't really leave anything on the table, that he squeezed everything that he had. Uh, out of out of his ability. Yeah, this is a perfect choice for this. I, I think this is exactly what the term maximize your ability, or if you believe in overachieving, what the term overachiever is meant for. A very ordinary talent who nevertheless managed to compete at the top levels of the heavyweight division for a while and win a bunch of his big fights. It was not pretty to watch at all, as you said, but he, uh, he, he really accomplished, you know, a fair amount, not even close to a hall of famer, but um, you know, put together a really nice career. And uh, I guess uh, some of the credit uh, should go to a certain uh, plate of spaghetti threatening, dumping loud trainer uh, <laughs> who who helped get the most out of John Ruiz. Uh, if, if you're if you're listening, Stoney, I'm, I'm, giving, <laughs> I'm giving you some of the credit, Stoney. Please don't threaten me. Uh, I'm, I'm being very nice to you. <laughs> All right. So the top two, I think, are going to be a little pretty con a little controversial, and I think it shows how just in these five, my list is varied. Uh, like you said, with with guys who had maybe, you know, that very brief shining moment at the top or one win against a much better fighter to the top two are guys who've had some pretty decent careers, actually, have had very good careers. Um, one has been on the Hall of Fame ballot and one will probably end up on it. But in both cases, they achieved what they did, despite not necessarily having truly elite skills. And the first of the two and number two on my list is Ricky Hatton. Um, Hatton didn't have a great jab. 
or tremendous hand speed or an impressive punt selection. He was not defensively elusive. Uh, few would marvel at his footwork. On the two occasions he stepped up to truly elite level, he was sent for, face first into a ring post by Mayweather and knocked unconscious by Pacquiao. But he did also have that fantastic night in Manchester when he overwhelmed Costa Zoo. He generated perhaps the most devoted fan following of almost any boxer over the last several decades. Those who were there for Mayweather Hatton remember it still for the presence of his fans alone. Um, and he put together a pretty nice run at the top of one, 140 pounds. Um, look, maybe Hatton actually... You could argue that he didn't get the most out of his ability. Maybe he could have gotten more had he taken better care of himself between fights and not repeatedly blown up in weight. But by the time he got into the ring, he was always in tip-top shape. The one thing that he did have, even if he didn't have a great toolbox of skills, he had that energizer bunny of a motor and a determination that utterly overwhelmed the majority of his opponents. Like He's been on the Hall of Fame ballot. I think he probably won't quite make the Hall of Fame unless he gets in in a relatively quiet year, but he will always be adored by fans and respected by opponents. Well, you hit on the one point that causes me to not quite be feeling this one, which is that he blew up a lot between fights, didn't take the best care of himself. Mm. And so I wonder if he could have had a little longer time at the top had he treated his body differently. Um, And he did have pretty good gifts, maybe... I guess he's kind of one of those who I would say when all is said and done probably achieved just about right for, for what he was uh, gifted with. But certainly, you know, I think his body punching, which again, it's not just a gift going back to the Roy Jones things. It's a thing. It's a lot of hard work and practice in the gym and technique to get that down. But he did, he was a a serious, he could seriously damage guys with body punches. Um, And so, yeah, I would say of the four that you've listed so far, this is the one that I am, uh, that I'm, that I'm going to get behind the least, but I see where you're coming from. All right. And number one on my list is cheating a bit because his career may not be over yet. Um, and plenty of people will hear his name and think I'm insane or worse for picking him, but I'm going to pick Deontay Wilder. And this is why I stress that this category is absolutely not meant to be insulting in the same way as telling Roy Jones that he is very skilled is not meant to be insulting. But the fact of the matter is Wilder's boxing skills are rudimentary for a guy at the top level. Um, mm-hmm. Rewatch his first fight with Luis Ortiz. Fantastic action-packed stuff. Just a dramatic, tremendous fight. But just watch some of those punches that he's throwing in the, in the heat of battle. They, they fit right in with being called by our new pal Sean O'Grady on Tuesday night fights. Um, his, his footwork is awful. His stamina isn't great. He can't fight going backward. But the man has perhaps the best single punch in the history of heavyweight boxing. That right hand of his is a weapon of devastation. And if he hits like a mule, he's got the heart of a lion. Three fights with Tyson Fury, by some distance, the best heavyweight of his generation. When he didn't win any of them, he decked Fury four times and came incredibly close to stopping him the first time out. And in the third fight, his two knockdowns of Fury came after he'd already been knocked down and hurt and concussed. And he kept going, keeping the fight exciting, even though he was basically out in his feet and exhausted for rounds. And yet here's the thing. Wilder is just, in many respects, a a terrible boxer. But those talents that he does have, he's able to maximize so much that if Fury does stay retired and Wilder does come back, I'm not sure I bet against him becoming the number one heavyweight again. Because 
for all those skills he's missing, what he does have is more than enough to make him a dangerous man in just about any heavyweight era. Yeah, really interesting choice. And it does underline that there are all sorts of different ways to interpret the assignment that, that I gave you. And I think he fits from certain perspectives. Uh, I'll, I'll just, I guess I'll succinctly say that he undoubtedly achieved way more than I thought he could possibly achieve right up until like the second Luis Ortiz fight or, or maybe the somewhere in, mm. in, the, in the first or second Ortiz fight. At no point prior to that, did I think he was going to get anywhere near the level that, that he got to. So uh, yeah, he achieved quite a lot with basically will determination, a big punch and some of the worst skills that we've ever seen at the top of the heavyweight division. <laughs> right. Exactly. And, and there are some other honorable mentions. I mean, I could go on and on, but some of the ones that popped into my mind, uh, Dennis Andres, I don't know if you remember him, who was a light heavyweight who had no business being near the light heavyweight title and managed to get himself a, a, a fight with Tommy Hearns. Johnny Nelson, the guy we've talked about before, having just such an unusual career and seemingly going nowhere until he resurrected it. Frank Bruno, uh, and I'm not just picking on the Brits here. Uh, Luis Colasso was one who sprung, sprung to mind. Um, you could say Orlando Salido, who had no amateur career to speak of, turned pro very young, learned on the job, and became a, a really solid pro. I was going to say Primo Carnera, whose achievements to skill ratio is perhaps the most skewed of anybody, but there do remain those questions that others are far better equipped to answer than I am about how much of what he achieved was down to him and how much of it was down to Frankie Carbo and the boys. Um, um, the list could be almost endless, depending on how you define the challenge and where you draw the line. Um, but yeah, like I said, it's, it's a, it was a difficult but interesting challenge. And my choices, I think, were all over the map. But I am curious to hear, and I too wish that I'd end up, uh, pick the, the <laughs> modern Hall of Fame list in the end. But let's hear what you had with your list then. Okay, yeah. So going just with the guys who are in the modern category of the Hall of Fame, uh, I'll, I'll try and be somewhat brief with it. Like, I'll be more brief than if uh, I were the one assigned the list. I'll, I'll try and sure. be uh, quicker with my picks. But so at number five, I was a tiny bit hesitant to include him because he has PED ties, but I'm including him anyway, because when you think overachievers in boxing, you have to think of Evander Holyfield, who was just mm. all heart and determination and hard work in the gym. He had talent, certainly, but he had to work about as hard as anyone ever for his greatness. And if he had wanted it, say, 2% less, maybe he's still one of the greatest cruiserweights ever, but Holyfield would have mm. gone down as an also ran heavyweight with just the tiniest bit less drive and desire. So I, I view him as absolutely a, a guy who mm -hmm. got the most out of his ability. Yep. Good one. All right. And, and by the way, happy 25th anniversary of the bite fight on Tuesday. Uh, if we were, yeah. if we were, if we were more prepared podcasters, we probably would have done a whole segment on that, but uh, we're not. Yeah. What's he going to do? Right. Okay. Back to my list. Uh, number four, Gene Fulmer. I recall um, the Hall of yeah. Fame promoter Russell Peltz talking about watching Fulmer as a kid and thinking, this guy stinks. Um, but with modest athletic talent, he found a way to be a pain in the ass for everyone and even to beat Sugar Ray Robinson. I, I don't think anyone would ever say Gene Fulmer could have possibly achieved more than he did. I would have picked Fulmer had I not like decided to stay away from Hall of Famers. Okay. I actually looked up to see if he, to confirm that he was. So yeah, I think that's a very good choice. Okay. Uh, at number three, like Holyfield, an undersized, tough as nails, heavyweight, Rocky Marciano. 
uh, a limited boxer. He mostly just had a great chin, a huge heart, and heavy hands. And he, of course, went 49-0 and and retired as heavyweight champ. Now, maybe a little fortunate to come along when he did, when, when Joe Lewis was washed and before some of the bigger heavyweights of the 60s, like Liston and Ali. Um, so, you know, there was some luck involved in his greatness, but through a combination of that luck, determination, and hard work, he got way more out of his physical package than anyone would have imagined he could. Yeah, that's another good one. Your list might be better than mine, actually, I'm prepared to say. <laughs> might be. It is. We all know this. All right. So uh, my top two uh, actually were both part of the trilogy induction class. And one of them you talked about when sort of setting up the concept here. At number two, I have Floyd Mayweather. Um, He had elite athletic gifts, certainly. But his mantra, hard work, dedication, it's annoying. Um, but it was a huge part of how he got to the top and stayed on top for so long. The man never got out of shape, never did anything to deplete his body, never undertrained for any fight. You know, he might have been born with the gifts to get to the Hall of Fame, even if he'd had a, a spotty work ethic and, and showed up for a few fights carrying a spare tire. But he wouldn't be in the GOAT conversation without having worked as relentlessly as he did. Yep, yep. So you're not going to insult him in an interview by telling him how gifted he was. <laughs> I've learned my lesson, Kieran. I'm never, I'm never telling <laughs> anyone they're gifted again. Um, so as I said, the top two are both part of this trilogy induction class. You may be able to guess my number one. It's someone we interviewed. It's Bernard Hopkins, who was a perfectly fine natural athlete, you know, not the most graceful, not the least graceful, but he became an all-time great and he remained a champion into his late 40s because he was that damn determined and focused, never stopped learning, and he developed one of the sharpest boxing minds ever. And, you know, his idea of getting out of shape between fights was blowing up from middleweight to a couple (laughs) pounds under the super middleweight (laughs) limit. Uh, So, yeah, for me, Bernard Hopkins epitomizes getting the absolute most out of your ability. And who, as you said when we were talking, could probably still get down to fighting weight in a week or so if necessary as well. He, uh, yeah, what he's, he's, was, he's maintained that attitude. He said, I think he's three pounds over his uh, yeah. the, the light heavyweight yeah. limit or something like that. And yeah, I, I believe it. That's that's what there is not there's not much excess weight on him. Um, a few other names that I'll just note that I considered among Hall of Famers, Joe Frazier, Marvin Hagler, Mike McCollum, Dwight Cowie. Daniel Zaragoza, and then one who kind of stands out because of the way he reinvented himself mid-career as a boxer after first reaching the top as a brawler and then ultimately kind of combining the two styles. I think Marco Antonio Barrera is, is worth mm. mention here. Mm. But those are those are the Hall I'm of Famers. Roy, I'm telling Roy you haven't picked him again. <laughs> Listen, uh, I'm really hoping Roy isn't listening to this because I, with all due respect to his greatness, I don't know that he qualifies as someone who got the absolute most out of his abilities. He was very gifted. Please don't be listening, Roy. I'm not sitting between the two of you next time. I know that much. <laughs> full toolbox, Roy. You had the full toolbox. And, <laughs> That's a and you, had a, and That's you right. had a wonderful Hall of Fame career, and I'll leave it at that. Exactly. Absolutely. All right. That will do it for this episode of Showtime Boxing with Raskin and Mulvaney. We'll be back next week with a preview of the July 9th Showtime card from San Antonio. Until then, be safe, be kind, and be well.